0: Greetings and welcome to Dead for Filth. I'm your host, Michael Verratti, and this is the podcast for all things queer horror and beyond. For a generation of horror fans, the discovery and joy of finding fright came from trips to the video store. In the modern era, that magic has been kept alive by distribution labels that work to celebrate, worship, and release those beloved films of yesteryear to eager fans. As co-creator and senior marketing director of the Scream Factory label, today's guest has helped horror fans get new and often remastered versions of cult favorites and lost classics. Under his care, films like Halloween II, Terror Train, The Amityville Horror, and new favorites like The Babadook have found their way into the hearts and collections of fervent fans. He's one of the hardest working guys I know, and he's keeping the world of horror media alive. Please welcome to the show,
1: Jeff Nelson. Hey, how are you? I'm well. How about yourself? Good. I'm really uh, honored to be asked to come to the show here and to talk about all things Scream Factory and what I do. And uh, yeah, just very humbled. Thank you.
0: Well, I'm really excited to have you here today, and I think it will give Dead for Filth listeners a chance to look at a different aspect of the horror industry. We have a lot of people who write and direct and act in these films, but distribution is very, very key to getting movies out and kind of rescuing some of these lost classics, uh, and the work that Scream Factory does, I think, is so very important in this space, so I'm Thank excited you. to dig into that with you. Uh, but before we do, we should start the show the same way we we start every show with the same first question that I ask every guest. And it's simply this. Why horror? And you can interpret that however you want. Why do you have a personal connection to it? Why do you think horror connects to people? Uh, what's the draw? But why horror? Well, before
1: I came on the show, I knew that you were going to ask that because I listened to some of your other podcasts. So I got a little prepped here, but um, <laughs> I'm going to go with the personal route. Um, you know, uh, when I was uh, really young, Uh, geez, like five or so or whatever, was really gravitated towards, and one of your other guests said this too, the Disney villains. That was sort of like the gateway, I think, to horror down the road. But I was obsessed with like the Disney witches and Maleficent and the evil queen and all that kind of stuff. And they were just very larger than life and and dramatic and, and fun. And, you know, obviously I wanted, you know, good to win over evil, but the evil sure was fun to look at. Right, And, you know, down the road, um, I will never forget going to a drive-in theater with my parents to see Superman. I think this was around, like, 1980 or so. And they showed a triple feature coming up of trailers for Jaws, Carrie, and Halloween. And my eyes bugged out like Carrie. Like, I was like, what are these? (laughs) And, oh, my God. And I was scared and, like. Like I th- I thought about those trailers more than I thought about Superman. And then the big deal happened when I was nine in October of 1981, when I saw the NBC airing premiere airing of John Carpenter's Halloween. And I happened to see that and it changed my life. It was so scary. I'd never seen a horror film before that I had nightmares for months and I was obsessed with it. And when the shock of that movie died down, I was like, oh, well, this channel is showing When a Stranger Calls, and this channel is showing The Fog, and this channel is showing Jaws 2. And well, let me test these ones out. And before you know it, I was just kind of off and running. And then through my teenager years, you know, I lived in a small town Mm -hmm. uh, in Vermont and being closeted. Uh, And not really into what the rest of the town was in, which was like sports and, you know, all that stuff. Um, Horror films became a like my own special outlet, like my own place to go to that my family didn't understand, that a lot of my friends didn't understand. And. They were all, again, fantastical and, you know, had themes that worked for me, scared me. Some of them were so bad they were just, you know, comedy. Right. And I was just renting them at the store, like, nonstop. And I have to interject that my parents had a weird role in this. Um, They were divorced. My mother, um, she hated that I watched these films. Like, she thought I needed professional help. So she provided the taboo. My dad on the other hand when I would visit him on the weekends would be like fine rent five movies, watch Showtime, get it out of your system so he kind of supplied me with the drug. Right. So between the two of their interesting parenting skills and the fact that I had already loved these movies it just you know turned into a thing and I guess I never outgrew it because here I am like you know 46, working at a company, being in a very lucky position to be able to take the love that I've always had for those type of films and be in a position to almost give back and and to curate and to uh, have fun with and to market and to be and to get paid. I mean, like, (laughs) it's crazy. So, you know, um, why horror? I mean, it's a loaded question, but. It found me, I think, organically, and it's just always been a special place. And you know what? I'm just going to say this. By nature, I don't want to see real life accidents or murder or the things in the news that offend me greatly, like real killings and stuff. But I know when I'm watching prom nights or whatever, it's fake. And and it's like a roller coaster, you know, and and now it's turned into like comfort food.
0: No, that's interesting because, uh, you know, the the big defense that a lot of people who don't like horror or the derision that we get from the outsider uh, perspective is that it's sick. Like, I remember getting <laughs> that, like people like, oh, you like that sick stuff. It's gross. And I have never met a kinder, more adjusted, nicer community right. of people than the people who like horror films, yep. because it's sort of like we can separate the fiction and understand the function of it and still not tolerate violence in the real world right Uh, you know most of the people who uh are out there causing a lot of trouble in a real way uh tend to be the people who are very stifled in their lives uh and i don't want to name names gop uh (laughs) but It's just, you know, thanks for telling me the movies I watch are sick, but you're curating a sicker world, so who's the goddamn problem? Yeah, I am keyed up today.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, it's funny because... You know, like even when I go to the doctors and they take blood, I look away and I just I laugh because, again, the the gallons of artificial blood that I've seen splattered over the screen in my lifetime, I mean, can fill up an entire room. I mean, but it's like the real thing, like, yeah, I don't need to I don't need to look at that. Sure. You know (laughs) what I mean? Um, But, uh, yeah, you know, in high school in particular, you know, teachers, students, um, some of them were definitely gave me side eye and and thought, uh, oh, my God, you're going to grow up and, you know, be a killer whatever. Of course, I end up having the last laugh now. And and with my mom in particular, oh, I really had the last laugh with her. I sometimes will remind her that the Mother's Day gift that she got is... Um paid for by basically horror films. That's, uh, that's, uh, that. I
0: mean, it's, it's interesting because my parents never really, uh, I don't know that my dad early on got the horror films, but he never stopped me from watching them. And my mom loves dark material. Like if anything, like if I was watching it, she'd be like, what's this? I'm going to watch it too. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> but they both appreciate it now, uh, and, and get it, but they never really stopped me. Um, from watching those things so my taboo always came from outside the world like and I think that you brought up something that's really interesting because at the top of the show when I did your introduction I talked about the importance of video stores to our generation but you also mentioned something that I didn't say that was very key to me and I think a lot of people was when a lot of these movies played on tv yeah uh and I've been very open in the past that uh my gateway was very much USA up all night oh yes and um I remember watching that and I've, you know, I've in the years since met Rhonda Shear and talked to her about it. And like, oh, that
1: must've been fun. Oh my God. She's amazing.
0: <laughs> but the thing is, is that she brought up a point. I remember when I talked to her about this years ago, she said, you know, the, the irony of up all night is it tricked you into thinking you saw more than you did. Cause all of those shows were, were totally edited. To- yes, Yeah. But <laughs> so you, you talk about seeing Halloween for the first time in 1981 on a network station, yeah. keeping you up all night, not at, you know, right. just scaring you. Uh, but you know that's it. Like there's still like this onus of taboo that you're you're seeing something you shouldn't, even if you're totally allowed to watch it. And that I think is an amazing draw of horror movies.
1: I um I you know I think generations now, millennials, younger, uh, even what is it, Generation Y, they don't have the you know what was really kind of cool about watching horror films in the '70s and '80s is. There were restrictions. Right. Uh, you couldn't go into theaters. Literally they would ticket you. Like it's like uh, this is rated R, you need to have a parent or um parents would be a little bit more like you cannot watch showtime past, you know, 10 10 p.m. because the R-rated movies are on there. there a little was, red shoe diary. Yeah, actually. a little little uh showtime used to have after hours or it was like, you know, th- there was a sense of when you watched porkies or when you watched um Terror Train, that you were really, truly watching something that you weren't supposed to. But whereas now, where there's so many cable options and Walking Dead and overt violence and a lot of things, too, it's just not as special. So there's sort of a, for a generation of people who remember that time, like, it really was a big deal to be able to go to your classmates in 1983 and tell them that your dad had taken you to see Christine a rated R movie like that was a big deal yeah. like you know <laughs> and
0: it's not that way now you know no because everything's instantly available yeah and if your family has netflix or amazon yep. or hulu or yep. any of the the platforms You just wait till mom and dad go home. and you Of course. You see it with your friends. Yeah, watch whatever.
1: Or you watch it on your phone. I mean, they don't know. I mean, it's just not the same. Somewhere David Lynch
0: just got really upset (laughs) that the mention of the phone watching. Um, But yeah, I think that's it is. It's so crucial. And it was so part of a generation. And I think that's why when you look at what you do with Scream Factory, Mm -hmm. uh, the artwork. Mm-hmm. That uh, you know, the the buzz around the releases. It feels like that energy that used to happen when you would just go to the video store and see those tapes and think, you know, the mutilator. Yeah. yeah I remember yeah, like yeah, we're yeah. like, you know, gates of hell. Yeah. Seeing those those tapes and thinking, what is that? Very, very
1: lurid. You know, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, I work with a lot of people at Scream Factory slash Shout Factory. Shout Factory is our parent company right. and uh uh my other the other guy that created scream factory with me we both you know worked in video stores movie theaters uh we both have been in the home entertainment business for a Mm -hmm. while but we're both fans big time and so there is an energy that i think that we have brought to the table um and that fans thankfully have responded to of of recreate you know we always try to do um uh no, we try to put the artwork that was the vhs artwork that was from the 80s or the original theatrical and if we're doing collector's edition we'll put new splashy artwork but still keep the original because we know that there's purists and we we like to kind of refresh the titles you know with the artwork i'll tell you one thing the artwork on our releases is uh <laughs> it's always a, a a controversy because you can never please uh, uh fans um, of course yeah. I, I mean, you just can't you, i can't you can't even please myself sometimes when I see these art. it's so subjective but um that is because we're so passionate and when I see the reactions to the artwork in particular because I run all the Scream Factory social channels uh it's amusing enlightening it's also frustrating um but it really just speaks to the passion that these films have in particular the older ones
0: well because I think we're tapping into something that has been happening culturally for a little bit now uh, that maybe you don't get a chance to talk about very often. And it's that nostalgia mm-hmm. is a tricky thing. Yep. Because when you insert nostalgia into an element of a film or a book or a comic or whatever, it's more than just about whatever that media is. Yep. In fact, at the end of the day, That's still just a movie, as painful as it is for me to say that sentence, it's just a movie, because when you have that attached memory, like this is my childhood, this is my, I remember the taboo of watching it, or I saw this with my friends at the drive-in or this, and you have attached all these years of your own life to it, it's not really about the artwork when you're complaining online, it's about you. Absolutely. And that's a tricky thing to navigate, because now instead of being about a film, you're talking about all the individual lives of the people who yep. have. And, and that's what makes it tricky. And
1: you know what? Uh, let me see. We're going on year six here. Thankfully, we're, we've are we been able to get past some tricky releases. I mean, we've had like, you know, the Halloween collection that we did with Anchor Bay, which was all the Halloween films. It doesn't get any more like, you know, horror royalty than that. Sure. Um, and Nightbreed and some, you know, really some, the thing, carry, you know, some real important horror properties and um uh we can do we can only do the best that we can do and we do strive for it i mean we we have um we're business we're small business so we have you know limitations with budgets and resources and uh and we have lives you know outside of even though we do work overtime on this and whatever but we try to do our best and for most part i think with um we've been able to achieve. The other thing too, is it's really important is that um, physical media is just so still important to have because there was an article recently uh, that I read uh, that talked about the importance of it. And I couldn't have agreed with it more because we're in a place where, you know, a lot of people have abandoned um, physical media. It's not like the heydays of DVD that it was like maybe 10 years ago. and right. And, um, uh, where people are getting used to streaming and Netflix and all sorts of things. Problem with that is though, is that you're also at the mercy at what these platforms um are putting up. And if you're in the mood to watch um, you know, uh the Sentinel and it is not on Amazon and it is not on that and it's not on that. If you don't have it on physical, you can't watch it. Right. And it's not just our company. There's some other independents out there that are doing the same thing that we are. Uh, we are, I think, rescuing and putting some of these films on, you know, uh, physical release. And there's even question about whether or not these are the last physical releases, releases that these are going to have, you know, unless there's another format out there past Blu-ray. I don't know. I, You know, it's tricky. And that's what makes, I think, people excited about and wanting everything to be almost perfect on the Blu-ray releases because we don't know what that next, like, how is it going to be 10 years? How is it going to be released 10 years right. from now?
0: And the truth is, even from a filmmaking standpoint, a screenwriter standpoint, uh, it it's kind of... I don't know how to say this. It's alarming Mm. that this could be the end of physical media because, having grown up with physical media, there's a joy as a screenwriter when I write something that I I get to put it on my shelf and, like, you know, look, mom, I made this. Yes. And so, I, you know, it's on both sides of the fence. The audience wants it, but we want it too. Right. And I can't tell you, like, you know, some of the TV movies I've written, people will write to me and say, how can I get a copy of this? I don't have a copy of it. And it's because we're just now getting to that point. Some of the movies I do, some of the movies I don't. And that's and it, I can speak a bit that of a little, bummer. Yeah, I can yeah.
1: speak to that a little bit yeah. because the, the, the newer films, the contemporary films, unless they're big blockbusters right. or they have a big demand or whatever, because you still have, you know, places like Walmart and Target and Best Buy, at least for now, you know, <laughs> uh, putting out those titles. Those will still always get a physical release attention right. But you just mentioned those TV movies, you mentioned some other stuff. Yeah, it is kind of unfortunate. The older stuff, though, the older stuff, I think that there's always going to be um, an audience for it on physical, much like in the way that like vinyl never really left or, you know, CDs will probably still never leave. like. Where's it, my laser disc research? Uh, well, maybe <laughs> that, that might not come into play but but uh uh but the the older stuff seems to have a little bit more water. The other thing too is is that. Look, horror fans, we love to collect and we also love to show off. And it's a perfect storm with social media Yes, because I can't tell you how many, you know, uh, Drag Men to Hell just came out recently. Right. I can't tell you how many postings I've seen collectively on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook of people getting their releases, excited about it, taking a picture of it, showing up. People love doing that. There's right. a, almost a high of taking the picture and... Showing it off uh, on top of getting the release and the physical and the extras and everything. So there's like a double, double whammy right. to it.
0: And one thing I appreciate with you behind the scenes doing this is you are one of those people. Oh, you totally. know I'm friends with you on social media as well as I know you in life. And what I really like, and you mentioned earlier that it's both Scream Factory and some other labels are out there doing this. You are such a collector that I see that you kind of pick things up from everybody. You're I supportive do. of the community. I do. It's like noble competition. And I think that's something really amazing. That Thank you. You. Do. you know what? I will Let me speak to that. I,
1: um, of course, some of these labels are a competition. So to speak yeah. on a fiscal level uh, on, you know, look, uh, a collector has, you know, you know, say a couple hundred dollars a month that they have to spend. And are they going to buy our release? Are they going to buy ours release? Are they going to buy Cobred's release? We realize that they have choices and some people wait for sales and all sorts of stuff. But I'm a fan myself. And so when those other labels are putting out titles that we couldn't get for whatever reason, I'm still excited about it. I mean, I never thought like, you know, some women in prison movie, the concrete jungle would ever get a Blu-ray release from, (laughs) from code red, but it did. And I was thrilled and you know, I got it. Um, so I do believe in playing nice in the sandbox. I don't think that, um, being, uh, disrespectful or rude to quote unquote, the competition really gets you anywhere as a human being um, or as uh, a business person, because also this business, uh, the business in general is a small business, and you also never know where you're going to end up down the road, sure. who you're going to run into. And if you've sat there bad mouthing or burning bridges or whatever on your, quote, competition, huh, they may be your employer in five years, or they may they may be, you know, a good friend of a friend. Like, you just, you know, there's something to be said for diplomacy. It's true, and it's something that a lot of people should take note and to heart. The best advice I ever got uh, when I worked at New Line Cinema was if you plan on staying in the industry, uh, always be mindful of your reputation because you never know where it's going to get up. And that was advice given to me in like 2001. And I'm still quoting it to this day. And I think it's important, uh, you know, for anybody out there who wants to be in the industry or, you know, in your own life, just, you know, just make sure that if you're going to burn a bridge, burn it dramatically and burn it great, but make sure that you can
0: live with that burn right. for years. You Solid know? advice from the house that Freddie built. <laughs> uh, so let's, you know, so we talked about your fandom and, and your excitement of, of titles and, and both yours and out in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you have been a lifelong fan. Mm-hmm. So let's take it back. You see that triple bill advertisement at the drive-in. You're yeah. sneaking, watching movies. Uh, your dad is supplying you. Uh, <laughs> At what point in your life did you think to yourself, I want to be involved in this somehow, not just as as a passionate collector or fan. And did you ever think about making horror movies yourself? Or? These are really good questions. Um, you. you know, I knew, uh, I've
1: told people this, that I knew when I was in first grade that I wanted to move out to California when I was living in Vermont. I remember telling my first grade teacher, Mrs. Grannis, I'm like, I'm moving to California. <laughs> I just, it was an in, in an uh, innate like it was a thing inside of me knew that I needed to be out here right I know that I wanted to work in in the entertainment industry um didn't quite know what I just knew that I needed to move out and two weeks after high school I said yep I'm moving and I came out here with $500 to my name and Moved in with a pen pal whom I had never even met, but I had been writing back and forth for three years, and that was crazy. Well, you're still alive, so that worked (laughs) out. Yes, exactly. (laughs) I I was 19, and it was, like, uh, during the Gulf War. I mean, it was just crazy. I would never be able to do such a risk. Um, And I had support from my parents, but not, like, super financial support. They just knew that they weren't going to stop me. Right. But, um, um. the horror stuff was always really consistent, but I had an interesting ride getting there. I worked at places like Soap Opera Digest. I was an editorial assistant for three years. That's because I was super into soaps and daytime camp. Days of Our Lives had some; they had some horror stories in there, like the the devil and, uh, and I Marlena? Marlena was possessed yeah. by the devil. And there was a lot of campy stuff there. And I worked at a talent agency, and uh, and it wasn't until I got into New Line Cinema. When I was hired as a sales assistant and then moved into marketing, that again, serendipitously, I was handed projects to work on like Jason X, Final Destination 2 and 3, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake. And I was quickly known as the horror guy because that was just like, it was in my blood, no one right. intended. Um, so I, once that was there, I worked at another company called Genius Products, which... This is very funny. I was the head of horror and gay and lesbian product. So it was like Dante's Cove and The Lair. And uh, I know you know some friends of those. They, uh, some of
0: them have been on the yes, show. Um, yeah.
1: But at the same token, I was also working on some of these really like low budget horror films or whatever. So it was like a perfect storm. And then I got into to Shout Factory and... There is Roger Corman films and the facts of life. And like, so I've been, I gotta be honest. One of my friends told me this recently. He said, Jeff, you're the only person I know that has been able to land in professions that have sort of like been a little hand in glove with my taste. And do I think that that train will last forever? Of course it won't, but I'm enjoying the ride as it is as far as making horror films. Yeah, of course I thought of it. I remember, (laughs) I remember like, seventh grade drive, uh, writing a story called the evil force and reading it in class and having cliffhangers and the, the, te- <laughs> the teachers were not very happy cause I would like slip and swear words or, you know, but it was like, I mean, again, it was like, or I came up with, uh, the 4th of July, which was like a complete ripoff of Friday the 13th. Right. And I was just doing that kind of stuff. And I thought about it, you know, um, but I see what, uh, I see what directors and producers have to go through to get a movie. There's a lot. And this is not to say that because uh, I do a lot of juggling at my job or whatever. But um, I just, you know, uh, I'm not there. I never say never.
0: Oh. But, uh, you know. Uh, I have to ask because you mentioned it by name. Are you a Facts of Life fan? Of course. <laughs> okay, good. Because I will probably never, ever get to ask another guest about this. But do you recall the episode? And I'm sure you do. That's the slasher movie oh, of, course. of the Facts of Life? Of course. And it's well, a,
1: there are two horror-themed episodes in the Facts of Life. There's one on Halloween where they think uh, Mrs. Garrett is the uh, slasher. Is right. that the one that you're think- thinking of? Yeah. Where it, they it, circle around her with a broom and they, they, they all think. And there's another one where it's like Twilight Zone and they're getting knocked off and Blair has like big hair and, um, and there's, and everyone's. Fighting the dust. There's like two slasher episodes. I think episodes. the one where they
0: all keep dying is the one that I'm thinking of because then it's all a dream or something. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's
1: all a dream. Okay. And they yeah. were in the, I think it was in the, the goofy store over your head or whatever like that. They were in the, it was right. in the later episodes. Hysterical episodes. Oh, yeah. I believe me when the facts of life got, um, put my way I was like I'm the marketing manager on this and I'm going to live love this show and and I was happy about that release for
0: sure. Ah uh, that show The series with more very special episodes than any other series. You know
1: what and it's so funny because you know uh, this podcast makes us a, such a gay following on that show. It's interesting because there was never an episode that really dealt with anything Directly gay, like except there were a, for the
0: first episode. Oh,
1: oh, well, the um, where Blair teases uh, what's her face for being tomboyish? Yeah, that girl yes. on the softball yes. team. And
0: then Mrs. Garrett has that sort of like very inappropriate. She's like, but have you ever tried wearing uh, right. a dress? Yes, and right. you're like, whoa, right. yeah, <laughs> very,
1: very, um, yes. Exception <laughs> of that one episode, and there was a male stripper episode later on, but that just you know played into um, like right. oh, they're showing male stripping on Fox Alive. But there was never, but it has a strong gay following, and I think it's because. Again, these women, uh, these girls Were an unconventional family Outsiders, they were sort of And also, you know um, I think that was a show that was like Either on uh, weekend nights Or something like that I'm gonna guess there was a lot of gay men and women That were home at that time Teenagers where they were And that just kind of like it's also a colorful show. They're always singing or right. doing some crazy thing and I don't know, but it does have well, a bit of Well, Charlotte
0: Ray's kind of like a drag queen,
1: honestly. You like, know yeah. what? It's interesting. It's kind of a precursor to the all the um television series where women are in like groups. So for instance, it was Facts of Life, and then he had Sign and Women and Golden Girls and Sex in the City and Desperate Housewives. And like there's a lot of like, but I think of Facts of Life as being one of those first like you right. know, of shows. I realize we're totally digressing off of anything
0: horror. This of life, but this is what we do. Uh, <laughs> but no, I mean it's it's it began with the slasher and Twilight Zone episodes of the Facts of Life, and mm-hmm. and there we return. Uh, <laughs> it, it, you mentioned working on uh, The Lair and Dante's Cove. Is it true that you wrote the tagline for The Lair, uh, well, Welcome to the Fang Bang? Uh, I did. <laughs> <laughs> I, I did. It was, it was, there was
1: also a tagline at Dante's Co- Cove where the ad was all uh, in flames and there was all these hot bodies and the tagline was, The heat isn't the only thing rising. And I had a lot of fun <laughs> with these things because um, my other marketing peers and my bosses. And the people over at Here TV, they loved it because it was like, you know, it's in on the joke. I will say without mentioning any names, I was surprised that some people took those properties a little more seriously than they needed to. I mean, it's the layer. It's gay vampires and, you know, sort of softcore porn. Um, I, the, the, there's interesting behind the scenes that, you know, I wish I could, you know, spend hours and hours and really be like, you know, tell right. it all. On all of these films, every release that we put out, the actors that we deal with or the producers, the directors, where people would just be like, whoa, how do you get things even out the door? And you know this, you've worked in the business. Oh, yeah. But um, yeah, no, the 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 lair was really fun to work on. And uh We had lots of conversations about the artwork because I wanted to make sure that hot bodies were on there and there were some opposing opinions. And I said, it's a spinoff of Dante's Cove. You want to have hot bodies on your cover. Right. Pretty, pretty simple.
0: <laughs> I just remember that ad slick that said, you know, welcome to the fam- fang bang and uh, giggling at the time. Oh, yeah. yeah. It just, I had a lot of fun with that. Uh, so that, you know, kind of gets us to the gates of Shop Factory, mm. but I don't want to go there quite yet. Okay. Because we're talking about the lair and Dante's Cove and sort of this, this world where you were working in horror and gay media. Yep. And, you know, it's the cross section of what this whole show is about. And you mentioned earlier, you know, growing up in Vermont and closeted. Do you feel like, and I ask this to a lot of people, there is a connection between your early attraction to horror cinema and your identity uh, as an LGBTQ person? I just think that, um,
1: I think there is, but I think that the two important factors just seem to intersect at the same time. At the time that I was discovering who I was uh, at like, 9, 10, 11 just happened to be at the time where I was watching Halloween, the fog alligator, all these movies at the same time. So those two things just kind of like were very important and they were both the most important thing on my mind. I'm sorry. Also dynasty. So, uh, <laughs> so, so if you put in those, that, that, uh, trio, I guess, um, you know, it just kind of like, they all sort of bounced off each other. And it's funny because there's a lot of horror films that have, um, no gay sensibility to them whatsoever, but boy, there's a lot that does, you know, yeah. I mean, I gotta, I gotta be honest. One of the things I thought I would talk about on the show um, was the movie Carrie. Right. Because, and I know that other people have talked about that. It is our most referenced film. Well, I'm just going to say this. Out of all the horror films that I've watched, and The Fog is my favorite. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've said that on some other episodes, and, and I adore Halloween, and, and I adore a lot of other things, too. Carrie will always be the most emotional to me. It'll be the one that I will always identify with the most because... Uh, like a lot of people, but I mean, not just gay, a lot of outsiders or whatever, but especially gay men, because we didn't really have movies that tapped into the kind of stuff we related to Carrie and we felt that, um, uh, picked on, teased on, you know, wanting to be ourselves, wanting to be accepted, wanting to be that stuff. And, you know, there were times when I, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna be a little sappy. There was times when I teared up watching that movie because it was just, you know, I could understand Yes, if I had had telekinetic powers, I would love to have wreaked some revenge at that, but but only with split screen and you know.
0: <laughs> whereas <laughs> and, I probably would have gone, and I'm about to do a deep cut, which I know that Scream Factory released on DVD. Uh, whereas if I had psychic powers, I probably would have gone the initiation of Sarah Oh right? yeah, <laughs> but where she like used her powers to like put the person she wanted to be friends with in peril, and then save them and be like, "Whoops, oh, here oh I
1: am. yeah, yeah, <laughs> oh, that's funny." You're right. You're right. I mean. You know, it just that that movie just held some stuff. And, you know, can I tell you, as a teenager identifying with that movie and then working on the 40th anniversary release of that, I just want people to understand how surreal that is was for me to work with Nancy Allen. We were working with um, uh, Nancy Allen, who plays uh, the mean girl in the film. She uh, is uh, she heads a local cancer support group called We Spark, and we did a screening in downtown of Cary where she was there and Piper Laurie and PJ Souls and came up prom theme. It was fantastic. That was high stress for me because mm-hmm. not because it was the work. It was like. I have a chance to give back to donate money for, from Carrie to cancer to like give this film like real importance because it was super important to me right. at the end of the day I did other people did too I, can't, I have to make yeah. sure that I'm not taking sole credit but um, it was super important to me
0: well, I attended that event. Oh, that's uh, right. That's right. Uh, at the Ace Theater in downtown Los Angeles. Uh, and it was a magical night. I mean, it was really great, you know, because in, in conjunction with the the 40th release that Scream Factory did on Blu-ray, you've assembled most of the cast.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Trying to get that was interesting in itself.
0: Yeah, we had hundreds of people dressed in... Close to a
1: thousand. Oh, yep. wow. Yeah.
0: Yeah, dressed in 70s garb as if we were all attending a prom. I wore my red ball cap before we knew how terrible those would become. Oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> Brian,
1: Brian Fuller was the moderator. And, right. um, uh You know... Uh, Jackie Beat did some Jackie sort of thing? Beat, yeah. We knew Jackie Beat was a big fan, so we reached out to her, and she was like, of course. And, um, you know, and it's funny because when I came back to the office, one of my coworkers, who happens to be straight said, I didn't realize that Carrie had such a gay following. And I kind of schooled him a little bit. And I said, well, here's why. And, uh, also because the movie plays as camp now too. Right. I mean, it's outrageous with its outfits. It's a very dated movie. The time, the story is never dated, but boy, all those hairdos and, you know, William Katz tux and blah, right. uh, everything. So, um, he was beautiful in that movie. He really was. Yeah. He really was. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was great uh, to work on that one. And, you know, out of all the films that I've worked on, that was one the one that it was just kind of like, wow, this was really striking back to the gay teenager in me from when I was a kid, you know? And I'm just really grateful, you know, to have
0: that, that opportunity. Definitely an event to remember and a feather in your cap, which I guess would be a good point to talk about Scream Factory as a whole. Tell me about the creation of Scream Factory and and your transition into that role?
1: Well, you know, the the Cliff Notes version of it is that, um, I know, I've been at Shout Factory, I'm going on year nine now, and I uh, uh, was working on a lot of titles, including single releases of Facts of Life and a Roger Corman collection and a bunch of stuff. And uh, the head of acquisitions there, who was also a DVD producer, um, said, hey, I've acquired... Halloween two and three and these other movies. Um, uh, what do you think about doing a brand? And I said, yes. And we sat down and talked about it and the company's name is shot factory. So we thought of scream factory, the heads up, enjoyed the idea. And we announced like seven titles at once, made a big splash and it kind of rocked people. Like, what do you mean these movies? Plus they live in death Valley and deadly blessing. And, you know, um, and, Uh, Cliff McMillan, that's the other guys uh, who runs Scream Factory, Um, he was able to get more deals with other studios that included movies like The Fog and The Thing and whatever. And just before you know it, we started snowballing. And um, our biggest selling title, uh, and you mentioned it right at the top of the broadcast, is The Babadook, which (laughs) (laughs) uh, became an unintentional uh, gay icon film. But um, uh, we got that through our partnership through IFC Midnight and... uh, Um, still our biggest selling title by far, just because that movie just ended up being a phenomenal film as it was. Um, We are now at, let me see, I've announced over 350 titles. Wow. Within five going on six years. There's a lot that we've cranked out. And, um, you know, not all of them are the collector's editions that have two discs and extra features and whatever, but, We try and we we look at each film individually and say, what can we do within our parameters to to give this an elevated release? We have more on the horizon. It's kind of like like I look at our release schedule coming up and I'm like, oh, the fans are going to lose their shit on this. Like, (laughs) I mean, and and I know and I know because I know I look at this stuff and I'm like, there's some things there and. But there's a lot of things that, you know, we can't get for X, Y, Z reasons. And, you know, that's okay. I'm spoiled. You know what I mean? I've released Halloween, The Fog and Carrie. And I've also had guilty pleasures like, you know, the Sentinel and things like that. And I'm like, you know, I have no room to sort
0: of complain. Well, I mean, again, I know your affinity for Carrie and The Fog, uh, but in those 350 plus titles, are there some other personal favorites that you're just like, wow, I can't believe, yes. or like, or is there the one that you felt got like maybe not as much attention as it should have, but it's like a, a gem for you? So last year,
1: I, you know, even though I've been, I, I'll pick some projects where I sort of ghost produce, you know, on the side, you know, and I just my name's not on it or anything like that. There's a you know, a cliff to uh, probably to his chagrin when I'm on a title like deadly blessing, or if I'm on a title like Halloween three or whatever, I'm, 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 I'm on it. But last year I put an actual producer credit for this film called windows, which was this unheard 1980 lesbian stalking film that came out, you know, first film of 1980, uh, just to, for trivia. So it was the, literally the first film theatrical release of the eighties. It bombed, it went nowhere. Um, but, I had been fascinated about this film for years and we rescued it from a studio. Uh, Has it sold the way that we've wanted it to sell? No, but (laughs) we were able to give it the love and intention that it's a wonky film. Um, But there's been, there's every year there's always, you know, you know, there's, you know, death becomes her or motel hell, or, you know, I'll go through my blood and lace. I mean, there's all these Weird movie. Some of these movies I discovered for the first time working at Screen Factory. We just released something called Eye of the Cat from the writer of um, Psycho that I'd never seen before. And it's a hoot. Um, I saw what you did with Joan Crawford. Uh, that mm. was a couple of years ago. There's several. I, I I do not keep my in, the entire Screen Factory collection at home, just frankly, because I just don't need them all. Right. But there's at least probably half. And it's because I actually legit like those movies. Yeah.
0: And is there a film that's like the elusive Mm, goal, the one that you haven't gotten, or or are there a few movies that you just like keep escaping you or (sighs) your dream? There's
1: three that come to mind. Okay. Um, uh, I'll make them brief. Um, Many people have heard me talking about this before. One of the most ultimate gay horror films out there is Cruising, William Friedkin's Cruising. I mean, that just is about as gay slasher film as it gets. Right. Um, There's another gay slasher film that came out around that same time that, boy, I'd die for it to come out on Blu-ray. And it's not super overtly gay. It's more closeted. And it's called The Fan from 1981 with Michael.
0: Lauren Bacall. Lauren Bacall. I want hearts, not uh, diamonds. Okay, so you know the film. <laughs>
1: <Yes>. <laughs> For those who haven't seen The Fan, it is the most, I'm just going to say this, it's a fucked up slasher film because it's, it's a movie that has, like, who were they targeting? Because if older people were going to see it to see Lauren Bacall and James uh, uh, Gardner, or I think his name is from Rockford Files or whatever, yeah. They would be offended completely by all the slasher violence and because the, the, there's a lot. Yeah. But a slasher fan who was into like Friday the 13th and Happy Birthday to Me, they'd be walking in going, what are all these dumb Broadway numbers with, with Laura <laughs> Flor- <laughs> recall This makes no sense. Um, so it is a wonky film, but it is fascinating and i'm fascinated by it. and then for strictly right on horror film i love alligator and we get requests for it all the time i don't know if you remember that one the, I've the, saw the, it on Alli- up Okay, yeah, alligator yeah. coming out of the sewer it just strikes a chord with me those would be those would be three that i would love to get my mitts on
0: the fan did that come
1: out before cruising uh the fan came out a year later the fan came out uh, and actually, to be quite honest, a year and a half later, this is how much I know about the cruising and the fan. And, right. and, uh, it was sort of like, like the gay representation in horror films because there was protests for windows and cruising at the same time. And then Dress to Kill had transvest, uh, Transsexual, actually, that in 80. And then the fan came out afterwards It's like, okay, we're not doing really good here with the representation of, of uh,
0: LGBT in, in films. Yeah, we had a rough decade in terms of quality representation. The irony of all of those films, well, maybe not windows, but that, uh, is that now they're all sort of embraced and beloved by the yeah. community. I'm very fascinated by the turnaround. Even something like Basic Instinct. Yes, Remember when it came totally. out, people protested. Oh my god! I was up. here
1: in West Hollywood. There were smashing windows. There was all sorts of stuff, and I saw it, and I was just like, ah, I've seen this and dressed to kill. It wasn't a big deal. Now we kind of like the movie. Right? I mean, it's okay. I think now to have like a gay villain in a television show or movie. But back then was such, we were either being represented by truly effeminate, like Beverly Hills cop Bronson Pinchot roles <laughs> or murderers or whatever. And, you know, um, so, yeah, you know, it's funny because I wasn't an adult at the time right. of cruising and those films, but I would have protested those films completely. I would have, the activist
0: in me now would have been like, oh, this is, this is horrible. But
1: now, love
0: them. Yeah. It's just also interesting the things that straight audiences choose to see and not see. Because, you know, those movies felt very transgressive because the gay was in your face. But then if you ask someone in the 80s, Nightmare 2, is this a gay movie? Most right. people oh, in yeah, straight yeah, yeah, America yeah. would be like, what are you talking about?
1: Oh, yeah. God. Well, it's so funny because I love how Nightmare on Elm Street 2 has become the the gay nightmare on Elm Street. and when I saw it as a kid, I didn't think anything of it except for the leather coach whipping thing. I was like, that's a little interesting. And then I, I'm like, and then now I see all of it as adult. I'm like,
0: aha. Well, I love that he goes to a leather bar and, you know, uh-huh. if you read interviews with Jack Shoulder, who directed it, he's just like, yeah, I didn't think anything of it. It's just like straight people are like, oh, it's a biker bar. I'm like, what world are you living in? Bob Shea's cameo is in that
1: scene. It always trips
0: me out.
1: You know, I, it's funny because there's a a lot of, um you know, we've put out them in the scream line where there's a lot of gay sensibility. um Sleepaway camp. Oh my god! I, if you know, there's, right. there's overt. There's a gay couple in it. There's some stuff in it. There's some weird gender bender kind yeah. of things going
0: Problematic, on. Problematic for sure by today's lens. Right, yes. right, but.
1: Completely like, okay, well, they went there. Um, uh, There are some other, you know, I mentioned Death Becomes Her. Oh, my God, a huge gay following on that Mm -hmm. release. I mean, like uh, Serial Mom. Uh, I mean, come on, John Waters. I was, I have to say, that was a dream release to work on last year because I got to talk directly to John Waters. And just having that was like, oh, my God, I'm in (laughs) heaven. It was really good.
0: Uh, I don't think we've ever talked about Death Becomes Her on the show before, but I feel like I finally get to say something that I have been saying for years and just commit it to the world. Is that I, you know, I I know that people love it because of Goldie Hawn and Meryl Streep mm-hmm. and these like outrageous, almost draggy performances. Totally, but completely draggy. What I think people overlook is that it's actually Bruce Willis's finest acting performance and I say this because when you go see a Bruce Willis movie as is the case with a lot of movie stars there's an expectation Mm -hmm. he's always kind of in a way playing Bruce Willis or John McClane there's like a variant of like the tough guy but you actually get to watch him act in Death Becomes Her and he plays this kind of like sniveling idiot and he's really good and he never gets the chance to do it and so often when I think about that movie I think wow that's like an underrated Bruce Willis performance performance because he's overshadowed by these just like amazing yeah. women. Yeah. But we never get him like that.
1: Well, I will tell, you know, your listeners that, um, that boy, we try to get these guys to do the extras. That's the other thing too, is, you know, sometimes we'll come out releases and people like, why didn't so-and-so come to the table? Or why didn't, you know, right. Believe me, we ask, but you know, sometimes, uh, for whatever reasons, uh, the cast and crew won't look fondly at these movies or they're busy with other projects or, right. Money doesn't work out or, you know, there's a lot of variables. But right. we were gl- we were lucky enough to get Robert Zemeckis to talk. Um I wasn't there in the interview. I would have asked him a bunch of stuff. But, um you know, we went out for those. But going back to Bruce Willis, you're right. He does have to hold his own against not only those two ladies, but all those at the time state of the art special effects, too. I mean, yes. there's a lot where he is playing third bill you know mm-hmm. even he's over overshadowed by Isabella Rossellini in the movie that's true too. she's pretty you know draggish as well that was a fun release and it, it was uh, you know I, boy I tell you I wish I'd brought my entire list of screen practice heads. I'd probably be able to go down and going yep that's pretty gay yep that's kind of gay yep
0: that's you know there's there's quite a few in there you know well a movie that's not just pretty gay but is embraced as one of the earliest uh in terms of, of modern releases, lesbian vampire films that you did release, um, that I'm very happy about as a Hammer fan is Vampire, the vampire Lovers. Lovers. Uh, that movie is one in the Scream Factory title I really, really implore uh, listeners to check out. It sold very
1: well for us. Um, I hope in the future we can get more Hammer titles because... That sold so well, and we didn't have a whole lot of extras on it. It wasn't a collector's edition either, mm-hmm. but it did very well. And I think, um, I think Lottie on uh, oh. who was uh, Knowles, who was on your yep. podcast, had mentioned that one as well. Yeah, that one's there. There's quite a few, but you know, I mean, I'm also going to say this too just because. You're gay. You don't have to like a horror film that has gay elements. Of in it. course. You know yeah, what yeah. I mean? Like, you know, I mean, I and, you know, I just mentioned like Alligator. This is really nothing, no. nothing about that that has any sort of thread to it. I just love it. Right. You know, Um, and it's great because one of the reasons I like I like this podcast and, and I was excited to come on is that, you know, I think. I don't think gay. F- horror fans realize that they really, we really do have a lot of numbers here, but there's a lot of crossover there too. I mean, um, I think it's a one thing where uh, generally um, some straight men and gay men can come together and enjoy, say a Friday the 13th film Absolutely, and, and enjoy it for different reasons. Someone might enjoy it because of Jason. Someone might really enjoy Betsy Palmer's over the top, you know, performance at the end. You know, there's different variations of what draws you to a movie. I love Prom Night, but it's big time because I love the bitch who plays Wendy and and her red dress and her mascara. Like, I think that is fascinating to me. And, you know, you know, I I
0: mean, the entire Prom Night franchise, but I particularly love the original because I have this growing list in my brain of movies with choreography that are not musicals. I'm just obsessed with this thing that happens. Where like Jamie Lee walks into the room and just busts it <laughs> down, and yeah. it's in like intricate dance. And I'm like, no, no, this is not that kind of movie. No. But I'm here for it. Oh, we're like in She's All That, where all the kids in school are doing the same dance. I'm like, w- what? Yeah, <laughs> no, that that disco scene in prom night
1: is uh, just flat out one of the most like campiest like. Uh, and she's doing it to to get back at the girl who who uh, crashed the prom. Right. And it's like okay, so you're (laughs) disco dancing to get some sort of weird revenge on her. Like, it doesn't really work that way. It kind of looks silly and, you know, and it's funny because by the time that movie came out, disco was already on the down. So it was, it's, uh, but again, well, maybe not in Canada. That movie was shot in Canada. That's true. Maybe Canada. Right. You're right. But, but point is is that there's, there's just, there's many reasons of why you know, whether you're gay or straight, you like a horror film, but I have to say that I am fascinated to meet, and I have been meeting recently a lot more gay horror fans, and I'm fascinated to hear what they've liked about a certain movie. I have an Instagram page where uh my own personal one, where you know I'll pop up something, and <laughs> a flood of what makes the movie work for them come up and it's interesting because a lot of times I'm like, yep, I agree. Yep, I agree or I thought I was the only one that thought that. I guess I'm not. You know what I mean? And there's something uh, especially, let me dial it back, especially since I saw these movies as a closeted teen, thinking I was alone and I'll be honest, going through really hard times coming out of this stuff. Worst time in my life is going through that process and really having horror films and dynasty (laughs) to to hang on to. Thank you, Alexis. (laughs) Um, So to be able to see that now as an adult, to be able to have survived that time in my life and to be able to kind of like, you know, have that full circle. It's just amazing. I love it.
0: Yeah, I think that's, that's really great. And I think that it really shows that you can find yourself in the things that you love But you can take a step beyond and make it a career. Yeah. Yeah. I'm lucky. I got to be honest. I mean,
1: dude, I work hard and uh, maneuver in in different companies to get in the position I am. Yes, you don't take, there's no course that you can take to say, hey, I'm going to be involved in a horror film brand. It just doesn't work that way. Right. Um, But I do, uh, I I, I do thank my lucky stars. If I could go back in time and tap the 10-year-old on my shoulder to say, you have no idea how long these movies are going to carry you through, (laughs) I would, just because it would probably comfort that 10 year old to be like it's okay for you to like these films it's okay for you to have a an outlet different than your family who was all into sports or whatever of
0: course now we talked in the show about nostalgia and uh our attention to dynasty these things that like carry us through uh in in how obsession really like makes these movies part of us and uh there is. I want to talk a little bit about uh, obsession and that kind of crossover of cult and sort of the world of Dynasty for a specific release that you did, that's sort of outside of the Scream Factory world. Uh, but I can't not ask you about it. You recently worked on the Blu-ray re-release of the Pia Zadora oh god <laughs> <laughs> The Lonely Lady. Oh my god! And you got Pia to participate. <gasps> Yes we did so Yes, Talk to me a little bit about your relationship With this masterpiece oh,
1: So for you Screen Factory fans That just want to hit pause or whatever that's fine But, <laughs> but keep on with it Because the, the, the Lonely Lady is a horror film in it's own right um, <laughs> Yes this was a film Okay to, For those who don't know this film This is a 1983 film that came out That basically swept the Razzies that year It got like 11 noms and wins And worst actress, worst picture Worst screenplay Like I mean it just swept it um, but it had been largely unavailable. It had never gotten a DVD release. And so it was just kind of like we were waiting for, I've been waiting for decades for this movie to come out. I've gone to uh, midnight screenings of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Alonzo Duraldi. Uh, who I love. Yes, yeah, who, yeah. who hosted one. This was about like 10 years ago. And I've been sitting here waiting impatiently for this film to come out. Well, Shout Factory, since we have a relationship with the studio that, uh, that, own this film uh, we finally got sort of an opportunity to get in and to make a you know like a bid to you know because we don't own these films we have to pay a licensing fee and you know an advance and whatever Right. and I took this one under my wing and worked with the collector who put the TV version of it and talked to Pia Zadora, who's the lead in this film. And we didn't know if she was going to embrace this. We didn't know if she was going to have a sense of humor. Thank God she did. And she understood her fan base of it. But we went all out. We did a new transfer. I mean, this movie is hysterically bad. I always tell people who've not heard of it. It's Valley of the Dolls. Is the first step. Then you go to mahogany. Then you go to mommy dearest. Then you go to lonely lady. Then you go to showgirls. Then (laughs) there's sort of like a there's like a Hollywood up and down type of thing. And you have to lonely lady is in there too as a fantastic ending, really bad acting, and the whole thing. Um, uh, I'm going to make a plea to your listeners: please buy it because I just saw sales numbers literally this Friday, and they were (laughs) so they were they were not so good. And I, and I, granted, I didn't have so much of a publicity budget and we had Pia supporting it and she promoted it and I did as much grassroots as I could. But, um, in order to keep those kind of obscurish movies, those cult films alive, at the end of the day, they still have to sell. And, um, so I, I beg people, please just buy it.
0: <laughs> well, that's, and that kind of brings us back around to the greater conversation of horror, horror collectors and this need to preserve these films like you know even though it feels like lonely lady would be sort of outside of the discussion of horror it's not because it goes back to what you were talking about and for those fans who really want to preserve these things it's it's not just the lonely lady it's titles if you love something you need to support it and this is true of anything like whether it's a physical media release if there's a director that you like and they just made a film on a streaming platform. You better watch it because they may not get another chance unless you do. Uh, and it's, it, that's important. And, you know, uh, yeah. And start with The lonely Lady, though. Go
1: get it. <laughs> <And> <laughs> no, I, but I mean, going back to the Scream stuff, I, I think I mentioned Eye the Cat. I mentioned some other titles, too. There's, we've, we've put out a lot of um, what we call hidden gems, you know, right. um, because let's face it, movies like The thing and the return of the living dead and army of darkness they're going to sell itself because those are huge 10 pole horror titles where the focus really needs to go into or sometimes is supporting those you know middle tier to lower tier kind of ones because at some point the numbers get too scrutinized i have bosses to you know that i report up to and so doesn't cliff my other partner And if those are looking like, you know, anemic units, then it's hard for us to justify a similar title in that vein. We've been really lucky to put out, you know, even we have some coming out this year. I'm like, I've never even heard of Super Beast, but we're putting it out. Like some movies of the 70s. We hope people buy them or hope the fans buy them or whatever or discover them. Um, But. You know, I root for those films. You know, it's not that I don't root for the big ones because I we really want those to work because they actually generally pay for the smaller ones because we usually get the films in like a package deal. We usually right. just don't sublicense the films on a one off um in most cases. But um I always root for the underdogs. And you know what? <clears throat> Come to think of it now I'm talking about it. Because I've always found myself to be an underdog, I think there's probably some chord that strikes for those films to work. Which is why I think... I can be a lonely lady. <laughs> you can be the lonely lady.
0: But that's why we need people like you working at this part of the industry, because you do champion these films, because it is very... Uh, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to have you on today. We ne- it, The whole of Dead for Filth is about the celebration of horror, of of queer cinema. But in, those, in that way, both of those often get relegated to underground or get swept aside to mainstream releases. And yes, there are screenwriters. Yes, there are producers. Yes, there are directors who are making them. But we need the champions every step of the way. And it's so important what you do to... And you're right. Like, look, you know, John Carpenter's The Fog or The Thing... They sell themselves. Uh, I'm sure that John's very happy anytime it gets re-released because it keeps his legacy and his bank account happy. But if John Carpenter's the thing also helps something like Windows get reintroduced to the world, then that's horror helping horror. And so yes, that's it amazing. Is.
1: It is. And we've been, like I said, sometimes I think, ah, oh, when is when is our luck gonna run out? When are we gonna stop having the opportunity to get these titles? And then I see other uh, deals coming down the road and I'm involved in those discussions beforehand and I see them I'm like, oh, okay, we still have things to mine. We still have um we still have a lot to go. You know, I mean, for somebody who worked I worked at a video store and, you know, saw all that artwork up on the shelves and we're replenishing them, whatever. It's so funny because I've just thinking about it now, I'm not really doing anything different than that. You know what I mean? Right. Like I'm still doing that, putting them up on the quote unquote shelves that just happen to be online shelves or, you know, people putting it on their own physical shelves. But, um, I don't know where I'm going with that. That's probably, you know, whatever. <laughs> my, my stream of consciousness, a little ADD. But I'm just making that connection right now that that's like, you It's know, just a grander scale. It's a grander scale. You know, I mean, I think people, there's a saying called, you know, a leopard doesn't change his spots. And, you know, I believe that people can change. But I do think of who you are at your essence is who you're just going to be. And that nine-year-old uh, who saw... Those trailers at the drive-in, I was particularly fascinated with Carrie's trailer. I was just like, "Here's a girl
0: blowing up cars! Oh my god!" Uh, but what I like about the Carrie trailer is, it's just like, "Here's what happens at the end." I mean, if the original trailer is like, "She's she's gonna burn the school down," right? And it's just like, so just come and see how it happens. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's funny because you look at a trailer like that now and
1: you're like, "Oh my god, too many spoilers!" Like whatever, but it right. uh, didn't matter. Got me. Well, the other thing too is remember a trailer back then. Would show up once. You didn't have anything to rewind it. You had the impression that it had to last, and that was in the impression of your head. You couldn't go back and scrutinize it like YouTube, or you couldn't do any of that stuff. Um, But uh, I don't know where I was going, all of this. I've just, it's so, you know what? I gotta be honest. This conversation is fantastic because my mind right now is just bouncing from one thing to another in the whole, not just the scream line, but just how it has connected with my personal life from a very young age. And I've never really, never really talked about that so publicly like here. And
0: it's kind of cool. Glad that you were willing to come today and do so. Well, so obviously at the essence of all of this is a passion for movies and your love of the platform. What have you seen recently that you really love? Oh, that's a good question. Um, You know, it's so funny. I'm really
1: picky when it comes to modern horror films. Super picky. Like, I... And I'm... I've discovered that when it comes to modern horror films, I like the serious ones. I like the ones that actually attempt to be scary. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm going to contradict myself in a second with one of the films that I'm going to mention. But um, so There's very far and few in between. I would say in the last couple of years, uh, I did enjoy The Babadook, but I also enjoyed the remake of uh, Maniac with Elijah Wood. I thought it was was terrifying. Um, Last year, again, this is the one that doesn't fall into the scary category, Happy Death Day was so funny and clever and done so well that I was just like, wow, Um, of course, Get Out, you know, some of a lot of people, some people were like, oh, it's overrated. I didn't think it was overrated. I thought it was really scary. I thought it was really clever. I thought that it was a fresh twist on things. It's hard now to come up with fresh twists in horror films because think about, the time that you and I, the 70s and 80s, that's when ground was really being broken. Right. I mean, Exorcist, Omen, Texas Chainsaw, Halloween, Nightmare on Elm Street. I mean, those are, you know, the, 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 a lot of tropes that we see were because of those films. Right.
0: Is it Before I Die? God, there was a movie. The ad- one with the boy from Room.
1: Yes. Yes. Um, which was really good. You know, I thought, I, again, he did a Ouija, Origin of Evil, the prequel which was well done. Um, Lights Out was okay. Um, You know, uh, um, but there are also, you know, some of what I do too is we also acquire new films at Shout Factory and Screen Factory and we've put out some as well. Oh, we have to sit through some, still have to sit through some clunkers. I'm telling you, <laughs> I, you know what, uh, my, my hat's off to any filmmaker who can make a film again. I couldn't do what you do. And I try to keep that in mind, but when movies come my way and there's a pool of people and we have to look at them from a, will this sell for X, Y, Z reason, whatever like that, mm-hmm. it can be a little tricky. And sometimes it does boil down to the content. Horror comedy is very tricky. Um, you know, cause everybody's comedic is a little, you know, different. I'm sorry, I'm going off, but um, yeah.
0: I think that's good. Uh, No, and all good selections and suggestions. Uh, Well, I'm happy that you came and joined us today. We're almost out of time. I'm super happy. I did save this final question because you have referenced it several times in the interview. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) What? What What did I get myself into? (laughs) Before we head out into the night, will you tell me what your favorite moment in (laughs) Dynasty (laughs) is? Okay, that's funny. Um, That is a great question. Oh my god. I love the one where they clone Linda Evans—not clone her, but like without replacement. That situation. story
1: was this was so berserk and stupid. <laughs> but I really do enjoy it because <laughs> yeah, it is so berserk and stupid. stupid. It's like why? Like it was a number one show, and it was like, oh, well, what are we going to do to top this? Oh, let's clone Linda Evans. Like you could have come up with something else.
0: Well, let's never forget the fact that this the, the spinoff series ended with oh, the UFO. UFO. Oh, 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 wait, hold
1: on. And I did put out the Colby's complete series on DVD. So mm. I so again, some full circleness going Peak on. Maxwell Caulfield. Oh yes, but also just that show. Uh, I would say for Dynasty, um, the big moment for me was, and I'll be specific, the sixth season cliffhanger with Claudia <laughs> burning up La Mirage with lighting candles like a crazy person, Sammy Joe and a man, a cat fighting in a pool, and Alexis taking over the mansion and throwing out Blake and Crystal and then Blake going up and strangling her and then freeze-framing on him strangling Alexis. And, and to me, that just epitomizes how over-the-top, in its own world, shocking for its time, Dynasty was. High camp, very fun, there will never be another show like it. Not the pitiful remake on CW. Sorry, and um, you know, and I've loved Melrose Place and and uh, even Gossip Girl and Revenge and all these other primetime
0: soaps that have come out. They've all had, but they've all their ingredients all crev-
1: came from Dynasty.
0: Uh, it's funny you mentioned Melrose Place because uh, I always say that one of my favorite moments as a horror fan actually is not from. Oh, no, it's a wig. It's the wig. When Kimberly pulls off the wig and you see the scars under. Kimberly gave me two of my greatest moments of, of my developmental years. It's when she also blew up the apartment building. Oh, at yeah. The end of but that they season. let
1: her move back in after they rebuilt it. That, to yeah. me, is when I stopped <laughs> watching Melrose Place. I'm like, okay, this is too stupid even for me.
0: Right. But, um. I know. Well, we have a pool in my apartment complex, and I always tell uh, tell friends, "I'm like, don't be here alone because Brooke slipped and fell right, and exactly. died by herself <laughs> in Melrose Place." But <laughs> you could also have a catfight in it with somebody in a wedding dress because
1: that, you know, Jane and Sydney had one in the pool. There you go. That's what.
0: <laughs> thank you, listeners uh, of Dead for Filth, for joining us on this. Wait, we prime ended time on tangent. Yes, exactly. I think it's exactly the kind of thing they expect me to end on. Okay, to be good. Uh, Jeff, where can people find you? Um, well, for Scream Factory related
1: stuff, we have a Facebook page, we have a Twitter page, and for Instagram, there's a Shout Factory page. Uh, for my personal Instagram page, uh, it's Jeffrey Mixed. Um, that's a long story in itself, away. I get that, but it's J E F F R E Y M I X E D, like remixed, whatever. Anyways, um, I'm having a blast on Instagram just curating a lot of campy stuff. Some of it's Scream Factory, some of it is like, bizarre stuff and um, we're fans of bizarre here. oh well so am I and uh, <laughs> so that's where you can find me excellent well thank you so much for joining us today thank you guys I really do appreciate it. and thank you to listeners if you made it this far
0: hey uh, I, I again humbled thank you <laughs> this has been Dead for Filth I'm your host Michael Verratti yours always in glam and gore good night and good luck Dead for Filth has been a Reverie Studios production. The show is executive produced by Aliyah J. Daniels. Produced by me, Michael Verratti, Dominic Seghetti, and Drew Phillips. The sound engineers for this episode were Dominic Seghetti and Drew Phillips. Music by My Own Cubic Stone. Edited by Drew Phillips.